Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Hal Hodson, The Economist technology correspondent, and you're listening to our science show, Babbage. Coming up today, mind over matter and how zapping the brain with a weak electric current enhances its fluid intelligence. The idea with understanding or detecting the P300 is it allows you to see a little bit into the future. We witness the birth of the next generation of mobile phone camera, a truly tiny device that spurns every aspect of current photographic technology. You could have this stuck on the back of your phone and you would be able to get an aperture then that would give you the kind of resolution that we've never seen before. Also on the show, how whales became so good at filtering food. Along the cusps, you can see these little holes that seem perfect for allowing water to be gushed by and then having small animals filtered out. So let's start with the complexities of the human brain. Work is underway to help us squeeze more value out of our grey matter by harnessing brainwaves called P300s, endeavours sometimes known as brain augmentation. Researchers argue that the best general-purpose computer is the one between your ears. It therefore makes sense, they say, to bring our cerebral wetware into the loop, rather than to merely build software and robotics that operate on their own. To explain more on cognitive behaviour, I'm joined by the Economist science correspondent, Benjamin Sutherland. Ben, to understand this research, we first need to explain the role of the brain's P300 signals. What are those? The P300 signal is a brainwave or a collection of brainwaves from essentially more limbic, reptilian, or primitive part of the brain, which registers recognition. Now, that recognition could be a child recognizing his mother in in a crowd. It could be someone recognizing a threat in uh, the jungle or the savanna, some sort of an animal that might eat them. So there's not a lot of information in the signal as to what actually is being seen. Is it something that could could kill me or something exciting that I've been really eager to see? It's it's just the the fact that uh, something has been recognized. The strength of the signal is actually depends on just how unexpected the stimulus actually was. If uh, you're in an area and uh, say you're at home, you're certainly not expecting to walk into your kitchen and see a big snake, but suddenly there is one there, the signal is going to be very, very strong. And so what the, the research that you've written about this week, Ben, what are they aiming to do with these brainwaves? The idea with, with understanding or detecting the P300 is it allows you to see a little bit into the future. Since you're able to see what sort of brain activity is taking place, you can predict what type of action it would be taking place within a fraction of a second before that action takes place. 
This work is being done essentially at universities and military research labs in the United States, some abroad, but a lot of it is really concentrated in organizations funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. Right. And so they're seeing into the future with, you know, you, you put this device on your head and, it, and it, it looks at these brain signals and gives you some sense of what, you know, what's coming. What can you use that for? I mean, presumably some kind of weapons application, but how much do we know about it? Uh, well, one of the main applications or the main uh, potential applications is for geospatial image analysts. Since the war on terror started, the amount of drone and satellite imagery has just expanded greatly. You have to have a lot of human eyeballs looking at that. And uh, the idea is through, uh, by detecting the P300, instead of having an analyst look at an image and determine exactly what's there, you can break the image up into a series of smaller images. These are known as chips a process called chipping, flash these images in front of the analyst at a rate of about 10 per second. Now, that's very fast. That's about half the speed of cinema. And uh, the analyst doesn't have time to consciously recognize what's going on in the image, but his brain does. And how, Ben, have they measured that this works? That's actually fairly easy to measure because they you, you, you backtrack. you The images that are associated with or that have given rise to a P300 are shunted into a different stack by the computer. And then you go back and you manually look at it with an expert eye and you find out that indeed the images three and eight that were shunted to the side do have something that could be an IED. Gosh, wow. So using technology to tap into hidden cognitive capacity in humans. Benjamin Sutherland, The Economist Science Correspondent, thank you very much for joining us. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Economist Science and Technology Show. Babbage. Next, the pill-sized cameras in today's mobile phones may seem miraculous, given that a decade ago, the smallest cameras available for retail sale were the size of a pack of cards. But Ali Hajmiri of the California Institute of Technology is unimpressed. In his opinion, even phone cameras are far too thick. Witness the optical bump on the back of most mobile phones. So he and his team plan to replace them with a truly tiny, solid-state device that spurns every aspect of current photographic technology. I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by the economist technology writer Peter Haynes. So, Peter, how do these mini-cameras work? Are they the future of photography? I think they could actually be the the, um, future of photography, Hal, because they're very, very small. They have no lenses, they have no mirrors... They have no moving parts. They're completely different. You can forget everything you know about the way cameras work today. These cameras, which are on a single chip, essentially use something called an optical or phased array receiver, which collects the light from which it forms its image using an array of devices which are known as grading couplers. Now, these couplers are very, very small. They're a little bit like antennas for light. They're about 5 by 5 microns across, And they can only pick up a tiny amount of light. So that has to be amplified, and that's done by a process called heterodyning, in which the light in the coupler is combined with the beam of a tiny laser in a way that strengthens the signal at the desired wavelength. And all this is done in a a just tiny, tiny little chip. So cameras have to be able to capture different kinds of images, such as close-ups or fish eyes. Can this technology do that too? 
Well, they've developed specially designed photodiodes that um, by placing various densities of electrons in the path of um, the heterodyne reference light, either slow down or increase the light speed as it passes through them. And this phase shifting, if you like, results in constructive interference between light waves that arise from the desired direction while light coming from all other directions is cancelled through destructive interference. Now, what does that mean in real life? This means that the control voltage of the photodiode essentially determines which way the camera is looking, but without any mechanical movement. So to zoom in, the device selects a specific part of the image and scans it incredibly thoroughly. But for a wide fisheye view, it scans the entire optical field, which includes light even from the sides, because the grading couplers collect light from all directions, and that changes from zoom to fisheye. And that change takes about a nanosecond, which is incredible. Uh, so, Peter, how small are we talking here? What, is the, what are the measurements of these cameras? The prototype OPA chip is about one millimetres square and around five microns thick. Now, if you think about this, the average human hair is about 70 microns across. So this is incredibly small. But the active camera element itself is just 100 microns square. So you have an array of these um, camera elements on the chip. Now, to realize the kind of resolution achieved by the camera in a modern Apple iPhone, Dr. Hajimiri, the developer, reckons that you'd need about a thousand of these, so close to a million. But by the time he's fully developed this, he thinks that will be less than one centimeter square. And again, a few microns thick, which means you could have this stuck on the back of your phone and, and you wouldn't even see it. You could cover the entire back of your phone with it and you would be able to get an aperture then that would give you the kind of resolution that we, we've never seen before. And what kind of things might we end up using these for? I think their initial use will be in mobile phones, but one can also imagine a time when such cameras might be used to take, say, pictures inside very small blood vessels to see if there are problems. They could be combined in massive arrays to create a lightweight but extremely large aperture that could resolve images from the deepest part of the universe. Or they could be combined in swarms made up of a large number of small phased array systems to image whatever they're looking at. Or they could simply be strewn to the wind, scavenging the energy they need from stray radio frequency signals. There are also some more prosaic uses. They could be used to um, create much smaller LiDAR sensors or barcode readers. Today's are pretty clunky. Using this technology, they could be minute. That's fascinating, Peter. Thank you very much. If you have any opinions on cognitive behaviour or the next generation of lensless cameras, then do please put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or tweet at us at Economist Radio. We also have a new blog to accompany our podcast. To read our thoughts and tell us what you think, visit medium.economist.com. Finally, baleen whales are an impressive group of creatures, not just for their songs, but for the specific technique they use to filter their food. But how do they evolve to have this unique ability? A new fossil may hold the answers. Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, has been talking to Babbage's regular host, Kenneth Kukier, who began by asking him exactly how these whales filter their food. 
So baleen whales take in a big gush of water into their mouths and then push it past baleen, and the baleen functions kind of like a sieve and filters out the small animals like krill that then the whale eats. And all of the really big whales that are relatives of the blue whale that carry baleen in their mouths have these filter structures in their mouth in place of teeth. The thing is, baleen is made out of the same stuff that your fingernails and hair is. And hair and fingernails rot away when you die, unlike teeth and bone. So it's very difficult for us to determine when whales started getting baleen and how that evolved. So a couple of researchers were really interested in that question. They started looking at some of the ancient relatives of the blue whale And they found one that had teeth, but the teeth are so funky that it really starts to tell us a wonderful story of how the blue whale and its kin evolved. So I guess the first question is, what is funky teeth? And then the second one is, why do we want to know this? The animal, when they put its teeth together from the jaws, they realized that the teeth formed something of a, a filter all in of themselves. Along the cusps, you can see these little holes that seem perfect for allowing water to be gushed by and then having small animals filtered out. So that suggests that if you're going to make the transition from being a toothy animal that is biting things, which we know is where blue whale ancestors come from. Blue whales and all of the whales come from land originally a long, long time ago. And somewhere during that journey, they got into the water and they started filtering food out from it after biting their food. But how that transition occurred has been a really big question. So They knew that this animal was capable of biting stuff, but then they can see these holes in between its teeth that suggest that it may have been using its teeth to filter as well. So that started to spark a lot of interest, and then they looked at the teeth a lot closer. And why do we want to know all of this? We are fascinated by the major leaps that occur in evolution. For years, people asked themselves, how did dinosaurs come to be birds? At what point did that major transition occur? And so folks started finding dinosaur fossils with feathers, and it started to educate us as to how a major transition can occur. Whales are another major transition in the story of life that we don't have many answers for. How does something go from being a small predator living on the shore of the water to something like the giant blue whale? How does that occur? And so understanding how the transition happened can help us to also understand some of our our own big questions about how we made transitions throughout our own evolution and understand other species as well. Okay, I'm sold. So I guess now the question becomes, what did the fossil show? The fact that the teeth, when they're brought together, form something of a filter suggests that the animal was filtering food out of the water. But just because the teeth can form a sieve doesn't mean that the animal actually used its teeth in that way. So when the researchers took a closer look, they wondered whether or not you would see wear patterns on the teeth that match with an animal that was chomping away at stuff, or whether they would see wear patterns on the teeth that were more anomalous. So for example, Ken, if you are going to go and bite stuff all the time, you're going to see abrasion on the surfaces of the cusps of your teeth where you're doing all your chewing, right? That makes perfect sense. Yep. But... You and I, because we are not swishing water around in our mouths filled with food and trying to filter that food out with our teeth, you and I do not get wear on the backs of our teeth because we're not chewing there. But these researchers 
theorized that, wait a minute, if these animals were swishing water past their teeth and using their teeth as filters, then they would see wear patterns on the back of their teeth. And that's exactly what they found. They saw these wear patterns along the, the sides of the cusps of the teeth that were facing the tongue, the kind of place where you would never see wear in an animal that was just chomping away at stuff like an orca or like a dolphin. This animal was having wear patterns on its teeth that just don't mesh with the idea of an animal that was chewing away. Further to that, when they looked at how the teeth were anchored in the jaw, they were not anchored very heavily. So that also suggested that these teeth were just not being used in the way that you would expect teeth to be used if they were being chewed. And finally, you look at the angle of the teeth. These teeth do not have piercing angles on them like an orca or a sperm whale. The angles are way, way blunter and don't support the notion of an animal that's chomping away at stuff very often. Could it chew? Yeah, probably. Was it? That's, that's a big question, and we doubt it very much. That's really fascinating. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist, or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 